All right, man, this is episode number 63 of the Cozy Corner of Cinema. This is being recorded on Saturday, June 10th, 2023 at 12.55 p.m. Man, I'm looking outside right now, and good lord, man, it's days like these that truly make you feel happy to be alive. You know, I had to step outside a little bit ago to check on something, and I almost got emotional out there, man, I tell you. Just feeling the warm sun on your bare flesh, man. You know, you step outside, you feel the nice warm breeze in the air. You see the animals kind of roaming around, the birds flying in the air, singing their songs. You know, you got the cats walking around, rubbing themselves in the grass. I mean, truly, man, it's an experience that cannot be put into words. You have to experience it for yourself to truly grasp at the fortunate life that we are given. And importantly, as well as at the life that we are given, to use that time wisely, as in wisely the way that we want to use it, you know, pursuing our creative endeavors, involving ourselves with people that we want to be involved with, you know, it's sort of like you hear so many people talk about, oh man, you know, this year, you know, time's going by so fast, I've done nothing this year, I've done nothing this week, you know, oh, I gotta go do this thing I don't want to do, but, you know, and I'm like, man, I can't relate to any of that, you know, I mean, it's sort of like I look back on this year so far and I've gotten so much writing done, I've gotten so much reading done, I've gotten so much watching done because of those are my passions, man. You know, writing, reading, and watching. That's all I care about in this world. And, you know, I you go at it full force, man. You know, I ain't going to be involving myself with people who are, uh, you know, I don't want to be involved with or talking to people I don't want to, man, you know, and it just happens like that. It's all about being at the forefront of your own life, which is easier said than done. But if you've got the willpower and you've got the courage to be at the center of your life, man, doing what it is you want to do with the people you want to do it, pursuing your creative endeavors, then I tell you, man, the sky ain't even the limit. It's above that, man. You can do whatever the hell you want. You just got to be able to, you got to be willing to put in the time and effort. It's easier said than done. But if you're sitting around talking about, oh, one day I'll make this great film or one day I'll make this, you know, I'll write this great screenplay or hey one day I'll write this great novel or one day I'll make this great music album or this or that I'll make this great painting it's like my man I gotta tell you one day that's today man you're gonna start on that today if you're looking for a sign to pursue your creative endeavors this is your sign my man do it you know (laughs) tomorrow ain't guaranteed an hour from now ain't guaranteed so you might as well work on what you want to do while you still got the time to do it man All right. I hope you guys have been doing well lately. You know, I know I recorded the last episode just a couple of days ago. Uh, Last week was a little hectic, so it came out, you know, a little later than I would have expected. But, hey, it came out regardless. And, you know, this week has been very productive. You know, the writing's been getting done. The watching's been getting done. The reading's been getting done. You know, one day at a time, man, one minute at a time, one hour at a time. And uh, a little while ago, a couple episodes ago, I was talking about Resurrect Dead, the uh, Toynbee Tiles documentary, and I talked about how I uh, thought it was just such an exceptional film, a great documentary, and I, I want to give a nice little shout out to uh, the user Swashbuckling Otter, who left a very kind comment, very good comment. So Swashbuckling Otter, whenever you get around to seeing uh, Resurrect Dead, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope it fulfills you the way it did for me. But speaking of documentaries, man, I gotta tell you, you know, the other day I, I finished up this documentary documentary and it's the best kind of feeling one of the true feelings of the cinema that you you don't get often but when you get it it sits with you man there are these films that you see films for myself like picnic at hanging rock or the swimmer or saint tango where when you finish them for me at least you almost feel 
like your life in that moment has changed. You're like, wow, I've experienced something that I never would have thought of, man, in a truly almost existential sort of way. And the reason why I bring up the Resurrect Dead documentary is because I watched this trilogy documentary the other day, and my gosh, man, I have not been able to stop thinking about it. And, uh, you know, when I make my end of the year, you know, favorite discoveries list, it's unquestionably going to be on here. But um, these were uh, films that I had heard about on a completely separate podcast. I heard about them on a uh, actually a comedy podcast that I listened to. And they were discussing the films, or at least the third film, I should say. And then I listened to another film podcast, and uh, weirdly enough, they had mentioned the films as well. So I had these on my watch list, and uh, I had the first film, it came up to watch, and I was so enthralled by it that I had to go ahead and watch the second and third film, and uh, I that's why I just want to pass the word along, man. So I'm talking about these three films directed by, let me get the name up right here, so I don't uh, miscredit the wrong person. Let's see here. Mr. John Alpert directed this trilogy of documentaries spanning from 1989 to 2021. We have the first film in the series, One Year in a Life of Crime. The second film, which came out in uh, uh, 1989. The second film, which came out in 1998, which, uh, in retrospect, most likely would have made my top 10 favorite films of 1998 if I were to do that list now. And then finally, the last part, which is the encapsulation of the trilogy, uh, Life of Crime 1984 to 2020, which was released in 2021. And this, this documentary series follows, at first, these three petty criminals, man. They're thieves and they're drug addicts living in Newark, New Jersey. We have these three guys. It's, uh, let me get the names up right here. It's, it's uh, Rob, it's Freddie, and Mike. And, you know, these guys are out there. They're, they're criminals. They're going out there. They're stealing stuff. They're doing hard drugs, man. Their lives are wild, man. And you see the real kind of underbelly of this sort of lifestyle. These guys who are just really not good people to, uh, you know, to other people around them. They're constantly doing drugs. They're constantly stealing, justifying for their actions. And you watch this first film, man. You watch One Year in a Life of Crime and when it's over, which, by the way, it's only 55 minutes, so it's not even a feature of you. But when I, I got over, I was like, wow, these guys are just, you know, you know, real just kind of dirt bags. And but, you know, I love seeing parts of, you know, America that, you know, may aren't glamorized or are, you know, un, like this is part of the America Undercovered series that I, I looked up afterwards, the other entries. And uh, some I think are available. Some I think might be lost or aren't as readily available. I don't know. But uh, I should also say all three of these are streaming on HBO Max. Uh, is that what they're calling it now? It's just Max? I don't even know, man. They they're, they went from HBO Go to HBO Max. I don't know, man. Either way, they're, if you have HBO, they're able to stream on there. But you watch the first film and you're like, wow, man, this is an interesting kind of look at these petty criminals that these guys are doing. And what the film does so well, what the trilogy does so well is that a couple years later when you get to the sequel, uh, Life of Crime 2 released in 1998, you start to feel differently, man. 
when it comes to the second film, uh, Mike is no longer in the film. I think I read after the fact that he chose not to participate. I was, it was a little tricky finding the clear answers as to that. But you still have Rob, you still got Freddy, and we have a new character, uh, Delirious, who uh, is dating Freddy, who is also a drug addict. Uh, I don't believe she's a criminal, but this, this follows up a couple years later. And, you know, Rob and Freddy, they're at a jail. And these aren't, I'm not spoiling anything, by the way. So I just want you to know if you're like, oh, man, you spoiled it. No, trust me, man, I'm, I'm not spoiling anything. But it's important to know the context, at least of the second film. But they're at a jail, and they're trying to do better for themselves. And what's interesting is that when you watch that first film, you have an idea about these people. You have an idea that, oh, these are just, you know, petty thief, drug addicts, you know, they're just whatever. And then you get to the second film, and I think what John Albert does so well is able to humanize these people and show that... In a way, you know, if if you're living in an environment like this where people are doing drugs, people are encouraging this kind of gnarly behavior, man, it's much harder to dig yourself out of that rabbit hole. We see throughout this film, specifically Robert, man, we see him really just trying to be a good person. He's trying to keep a steady job and, you know, and he's doing well. And then you get to a part in it where, you know, they just throw him under the bus and you're just like, man, of course that these kinds of people, you know, who who grew up, grew up in these areas, man, and grew up with... Uh, you know, a lot of these easily accessible narcotics, of course they'd go back to them, man, because it's almost like society, you know, what we consider normal society rejects them because we see them as one way, and it's tragic to watch it, man. It's like, you know, I think the way that this documentary is done, it almost plays out like a uh, theatrical film in a way where we see that these characters, you know, I say characters only in the term itself, not necessarily calling these people characters because this is a documentary. It's very important to remember that these are, in fact, people. You know, we see these people, you know, for the most part trying to do well, but they also have very deep-seated flaws, man. I mean, you know, you watch these films and there's just troubling times. There's, you know, some of the stuff when you're, they're involved in, like, small kids and stuff, these small kids who don't have, you know, who don't have parents who are around for them. You're conflicted as a viewer because you're like, man, I want to be on your side, but these kids need to be looked after, man. They're, you know, it's very disheartening watching some of this. And I, you know, I read some criticism about John Albert's direction of the documentary that I don't totally agree with, man. You know, they say that he was almost mocking them in a way, and I feel like I don't even get how you'd get that from this, you know, uh, watching all three of these. But Life of Crime 2 is a full feature, man. It's, a, it's, an, it's two hours, it feels fully formed, and, uh, you know, it, you should watch the first film before this, but I think if you jumped right into this, you wouldn't be totally lost. Uh, now, the thing is, is that when you have the third film in the trilogy, Life of Crime, 1984 to 2020, you know, uh, the, the comedy podcast that I was listening to, they had only watched this one, they hadn't seen the previous two, so I was curious, and then the film podcast I I was listening to, uh, one of the members on there was saying that, uh, you know, he watched the first two and it's important, you know, in context of this film. So that's what I did. I had watched the first two, both were very good. And then I watched this film. Now, if you watch this film on its own, you would still be able to follow it easily because the first hour or so of the film basically recaptures 
or, uh, uh, you know, gets you up to speed on these characters and what they're doing. They include Mike in the film, who is not in the second one. And importantly enough, they actually include a lot of footage that was not in the first two films. So I think for the full experience, it is best to watch the first two before this. But if you just watch this one, you wouldn't be lost. You would be up to date on it. But I think emotionally, ultimately what I got out of it was enhanced by watching the first two films. So what this film does is that after the 1998 Life of Crime, too. This doesn't go straight into 2020. It's just that's just where the film ends. But it shows the characters throughout the years, man, throughout the 2000s and stuff, and what they're up to. Rob, Freddie, and Delirious—they're trying to do better, better for themselves. But different circumstances lead them to different paths. So you're watching the film, watching the film, you know, and all that. And um, importantly, what I what I really don't want to say, which is what I think you the you the uh, viewer need to experience for yourself is the last 25, 30 minutes of this, man, it truly just stuck with me, man. I mean, when this when this documentary was done, I was sitting there checking my phone, I'm checking my emails, seeing if I got any messages and all that, replying to some people. But still, I'm just thinking about the last 30 minutes of this film. Where are these characters, like, you know, the, the what's going on with these characters, you know, wh- how the film expertly decides to hold off certain information and show it at a certain time. I mean, there's just some images in this, at the end of this film that I won't ever be forgetting, man. And it's truly the power of the documentary film, where if this was a narrative film, a theatrical, you know, traditional cinematic film, it would definitely be impactful. But to see it seeing these real people, seeing this trilogy, and, you know, ultimately what happens at the end of this, it really is like a gut punch, man. It really leaves you with these moral conundrums of emotions, man. And that's what the best kind of documentaries do, man. They really just keep you invested for days, weeks, months, years, decades after. And I think what John Albert does here is so brilliantly show us into this one part of America that, you know, maybe we don't want to think about or maybe we don't want to, you know, see, but gets us involved in these people's lives, man, where we write them off as this one thing. And then we actually see what becomes of them, see the good in them, see the human beings behind what they're doing and it leaves us feeling you know just these complicated emotions that I think are more impactful because this is a documentary rather than a traditional cinematic narrative man you know I'm watching this film and when it's over I really am just thinking about it I'm thinking about it at work the next day I'm thinking about it on the weekend you know I'm just replaying scenes in my head and to me that's what the best kind of documentary can do you know I proudly stand by my claim that a good documentary can be a great film can be better than a great film I apologize, but in a case like this, this is just one of, I mean, I don't want to make any kind of hyperboles, any kind of exaggerations, because it's easy to watch a great film, and then when you walk out of it, go, oh, that was was one of the greatest things I've ever seen, and then you think about it years later, and you're just like, ah, you know, it's good, you know, I've been guilty of that, man, there's plenty of films I walked out of, and like, you know, when I was younger, not not so much now, but when I was younger, I walk out of, and I'm immediately like, oh, that was was one of the greatest things I've ever seen, and then years later, you know, hey, you remember that film, like, oh, yeah, that that was good, you know, but this, I'm watching this, and when this is over, I'm really just like, this is this trilogy, man, not just the last film, but this trilogy is really up there with the strongest documentaries I've ever seen. And the fact that I just talked about Resurrect Dead, talking about, you know, the, the power of documentaries, how important they are, and then watching this just a couple weeks later, I mean, truly, you know, I, I don't know, I mean, there's some sort of force out there that's saying, like, Dan, you got to watch these films and tell people about them, man. I mean... If you have HBO, you need to be on this, like, white on rice, man. 
And I know it can be hard to watch, and it definitely is. So, you know, if, you know, there's a lot of upsetting imagery in the film, but I think it's important because, you know, it, you need to expose yourself to this kind of uh, reality. And if you choose not to, that's okay, too. You know, I don't believe that you should just subject yourself to this. You should be forced to. But at the same time, I do also believe that it's important, not just for a subject like this, as dark as drug use and, you know, domestic violence and all that, but ultimately seeing a side that you wouldn't normally uh, uh, spend too much time with. Or maybe you pass by on the news and you're just like, oh, I don't want to see that. You know, it's something happening somewhere far away from me. But it's like, brother, this is happening right in your backyard, man. But ultimately... It's up to you whether or not you want to you want to dive into some of these more uh, uh, tricky documentaries, you know. Like I said before, man, you know, I'm still a meat eater, but, you know, I've had a vegan acquaintances and vegetarian acquaintances recommend me documentaries. And, you know, there's footage in those that I'm like, oh, it's horrific. And, you know, I, it's obviously upsetting to see. But ultimately, I, I, in my own opinion, I feel like I do need to see a lot of this and get my own educated opinion. Whether or not my opinion changes or not, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder, but having an educated opinion, whether you agree with the documentarian or the documentary, politically, religiously, ideologically, it is important to have that educated opinion. It is so easy to fall back on just, well, I'll listen to what the people I agree with say and no one else. It's like, brother, I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Vegan, Carnivore, Religious, Not Religious, I don't give a damn, man. I think it's important to have an educated opinion and form your life around that education, man. And, uh, oh, I went off a little bit of a, of a, uh, of a, uh, speech there of a monologue, but the fact remains the same, man. Life of crime one, two, and three, you can find one on HBO and they are completely worth your time, man. Truly. It is such a pleasure to watch these films, man. Speaking of great films I have seen recently, Let's talk about somebody who I have talked about quite a bit in the past few months or so. Mr. Jean-Luc Godard, one of my favorite filmmakers, one a divisive filmmaker for sure. You either love him or you hate him. You either love his films or you hate his films, you know. And uh, I've, you know, readily admitted in the past that even when I was getting into the French New Wave, the first time I saw Breathless, I had very negative feelings on it. I was just like, this is everything I don't like about the French New Wave. But the more I saw of his films, Pierre Le Fou, Band of Outsiders, Alphaville, you know, I was just like, wow, okay, this is actually a really terrific filmmaker. And one of his big films that I hadn't seen until just this weekend was... Just that weekend from 1967, starring uh, Marilyn Dark and Jean Yen, and you may be asking yourself, who the hell are those people? Well, I don't know because I pronounced her names wrong, but I don't think I've seen them in another work of Godard. Man, I tell you, this also has more familiarly with the French New Wave is uh, Jean Pierre Leud, who I have mentioned a little while ago. Uh, it was his birthday recently, but. Antoine Doinel from the Truffaut films and also from uh, another Godard film, Masculine Feminine. It's been plenty of films, man. You, you see enough French films, you're going to see him pop up, man. And I thought this was a really exceptional film, man. Weekend. This is very loose on narrative. This is probably of Godard's work that I've seen uh, the most experimental, where the editing in this is not just the title cards, where you see a Godard film, and he's using a lot of crazy techniques with the title cards. There's a damn squeaking chair. 
you know, where he has like a uh, 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 text flashing on the screen or does the opening credits in a certain way. But this film feels very surreal where you have at times the characters will be in a field they're running through and then just like that in a jump cut, you have a field of sheep they're running through now. Or you have these surreal sequences. We have cars with bodies hanging out of them. You know, you have cars kind of hanging down on trees, uh, broken down motors and airplanes and stuff. Uh, very gory film. It's probably the goriest of his work. It's the most upsetting of his work. And I know it was the most controversial of his work because when this came out, I believe this was around the time that the student protests were happening in France. You know, this in both the Truffaut and Godard books that I read, it was it was interesting to see kind of uh, at first their uh, mutual feelings on the protests, but ultimately their downfall and not, I'm sorry, not the downfall, ultimately their fallout with one another because of that, where Truffaut and Godard had different ideologies on the protests going forward, not just of the student protests, but of other kind of political opinions throughout the next decade or so. And what's interestingly enough is that Godard was very hostile towards Truffaut later on, you know, but Truffaut still really had that uh, kind of admiration for Godard, you know, and I think that's why Truffaut Foe's work overall, I think, is stronger, and him as a person I find to be far more interesting, but I think Adar is a character in his own right as a person and the types of films that he made, where even though he, you know, resented Truffaut in a way for not backing him up on certain political movements uh, from there on out, you know, even into like the mid-80s and stuff, uh, before Truffaut ultimately died a very, uh, you know, young death. I think Truffaut still had a real respect for him. And I forgot what it was that one of Truffaut's later films that referenced one of Godard's films. I do apologize. I don't remember exactly what it was. But I remember there was a specific mention of that where it was after the two of them had a falling out. But Weekend, I will say, is up there with one of the strongest of Godard's work that I've seen. I've said before that Pierre Lefou is my favorite Godard film. And Contempt is probably right behind that, I would say. Um, and I would say that Weekend is right behind both of them. I, I enjoy it more than uh, Alphaville. I enjoy it more than Band of Outsiders. Two of his films that I uh, think are very good, very exceptional. Um, you know, I, I, I'm trying to remember. Have I seen The Little Soldier? I don't know if I have or not. Interesting. I got to think about that if I've actually seen it or not. But Weekend is a nice diversion to his other previous films because it has that same erratic editing style but it has like I said before that real surreal quality the film kind of goes along with these uh, with uh, it's less concerned with a protagonist like in some of his other films like you know Breathless or Masculine Feminine where we're focused on the singular protagonist or this couple I should say you know man and a woman but in here we have the two lead characters Kareen and Roland who are going across France and they meet up with various kind of groups and various kind of factions and the film kind of delves into this, like I said, this kind of surreality. Is that a word? I don't think it's a word. I may have just made that up, or I, either that or I didn't say it right. But then you get into a lot of upsetting violence in a way that I imagine would probably turn some people off. You know, it's a very bloody film. There's a lot of dead bodies. There is some real animal cruelty in this film that undoubtedly will upset people. So if you think this that might turn you off, then just be warned about that if you are interested in watching the film. Um, there is some pretty gnarly animal cruelty in this, but I do think it absolutely affects of the film kind of showing the carnage and the bloodshed that goes on throughout this uh, these characters' journeys where they're trying to um, 
uh, they're going to go after this this character Corrine's uh, uh, parents to kill them for the inheritance. And while that's the plot as a spine, you know, to kind of set up the film, ultimately it's more about the journey. This has some great filming techniques in it. It has a really phenomenal long shot that Godard does that I believe was the longest long take at the time of just this car of the two of them going in and out of traffic and the sounds of honking, the sounds of people yelling. And then ultimately what we see at the climax of that is really powerful in a way where it really kind of lets your guard down for a while and then when you're like you know sitting there like what's this gonna do then bam here you are man you know i think for a while i categorized you know when i was younger i think i thought of Kadar as one kind of filmmaker because i had seen the problem that i had seen breathless later than i had seen other frank's new wave films i'd been much more familiar with the work of true foe than i had with Kadar. so when i eventually saw breathless in a way i had it felt as if i should have seen that film first you know because even films by uh, the great louis mal who i had been more familiar with who i think also i find to be a much stronger filmmaker um by the time i got to a film like breathless and a film like masculine feminine it almost seemed like parody in a way, but ultimately because those films, you know, I know masculine feminine is a little later, I should say. Um, but because those films, I think I had an idea of, and they ended up being that idea as opposed to filmmakers like Jacques Demy or uh, Eric Romer, you know, who are doing really exceptional work with what they were given. When I go to those more kind of traditional French and away films, I was at first kind of hostile, like what, what, you know, this is, this is exactly what I expected of it. But then, you know, going back and seeing his other work and then, you know, seeing his other work and then going back to those, it's why I think it's important, man, because, you know, I've said before, maybe I've said it or maybe not, that I'm not I'm not a fan of uh, John Cassavetes as a director. I think he's a very important filmmaker um, and very important in cinema history, the history of Martin Scorsese, but ultimately his films don't work for me. You know, I have my reasons behind it, but, you know, when I saw, when I saw some, of his, some of his films, I was like, man, I really, really don't like this. But then I see some of his other work. I see films like Woman of the, yeah. <laughs> Woman of the Influence, Try to say that too fast. And Opening Night. Uh, films that I think are great, that it makes me appreciate those films that I didn't like more, where I can go, okay, even though I don't like some of his famous films, they just don't work for me, I'm able to appreciate them on a historical level in the way that, you know, when I see a film that's considered a classic, if you will, and there are plenty of quote-unquote classics that I'm just not a fan of, that don't work for me, but I also have to take a step back and think to myself, well, what makes these films timeless? What makes these films quote-unquote classics? Why are we still talking about these films from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s today, you know, and what makes them that, you know, is it when they were released, the historical context, the political context, you know, and I think it's important to narrow it down. So next time, you know, if I hear somebody go like, oh, I think Citizen Kane's a terrible film, you know, I'm going to disagree. I think it's a masterpiece, but I'm curious as to why they think that way. And if it's, and if they have the reasons behind it where maybe the script doesn't work for them or maybe the directing doesn't work for them, uh, that's completely their product, that's completely their right, that's in the eye of the beholder. But I'm less interested in somebody trying to be contrarian and saying, oh, Citizen Kane sucks or, you know, Casablanca sucks. It's like, Man, uh, that seems a bit of a stretch. Uh, you know, it doesn't suck. You know, and I bl- and I've said before, I don't, I don't believe there is objectivity in art. I don't believe there is at all. If you think those films truly suck, then Max, you're right. But I'm, you know, but I think it's important to understand why these films have lasted as long as they have, and not just films. 
um, paintings, of music. There's plenty of classic bands I'm not a fan of, but I have to think, well, why have they still? Ha- why are they still relevant today? You know, plenty of paintings and painters that maybe I don't fully understand. Granted, I'm not as familiar with the art world, so I'm not. You know, I'm looking at a very surface level opinion, but. But I think, why has their art persisted? Why has the artist persisted, you know? And I think that's important to understand in terms of any any sort of art form, any sort of medium. And I understand that some art forms and mediums are, uh, are taken in different ways, you know? The way that a comedy film and a, and a uh, music album are similar because they're the most subjective. It's how you get out of it emotionally as opposed to, like, a, maybe a great drama or, like, a great, uh, you know, Picasso painting or a Vermeer, you know? It's, it's all in the eye of the beholder, but I think context is so important that really will shape our opinion going forward. But this was, uh, I guess, another rambling episode. I do apologize, guys. I uh, sometimes tend to go on these ramblings that may seem like nonsense. So if you stuck around, great. If not, then you're not hearing what I'm saying. But anyways, guys, the day is still beautiful. The sun is shining. Oh, my gosh, man. It's, it's, if you could see what I'm seeing right now, it would almost make you weep. You know, truly just fortunate to be alive right now. I get to experience days like these. Do not take them for granted, man. You only get this one life, so you might as well use the time you got while you still got it, man. All right. You guys take care. Have a phenomenal weekend, or whenever you're listening to this, have a phenomenal rest of your day. Get that Friday mentality in seven days a week. It's going to work out for you in the long run. All right. You guys take care, and I'll be back next time.